Welcome to the Plain Faith Podcast, Episode 5. We deal with all the classic mountain flying things. Mountain wave turbulence, weather in the valleys, rain in the valleys, wind just whipping through some of these valleys that you have to learn to deal with. And so it can be pretty intimidating sometimes to go out and go flying. The Plain Faith Podcast is a podcast about missionary aviation and the stories of missionary aviators who have taken seriously Jesus' command to go and make disciples of all nations and are using airplanes to be His witnesses at the ends of the earth. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Your host for today's show will be Jimmy Tidmore, who, in addition to hosting this podcast, is a pastor and a pilot residing with his family in what is known as the Rocket City, Huntsville, Alabama. He is very interested in promoting missionary aviation and helping prospective missionary pilots reach the mission field. And now, with these introductions out of the way, let's get started on another great episode of the Plain Faith Podcast. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Plain Faith Podcast. Our flight plan for today's show will take us back to a familiar destination, the town of Wamana in Papua, Indonesia. You may remember that the very first guest on the Plain Faith Podcast, Daniel Gieslin, also served in Wamana. Well, today we are going to be speaking with one of Daniel's teammates, Pete Greenwald, about his experiences not only in Wamana, but also about his experiences in preparing to serve as a missionary pilot for Mission Aviation Fellowship in that part of the world. I really enjoyed my conversation with Pete, and I am happy to share his story with you on this episode. Well, Pete, I'm very excited for the opportunity to speak with you tonight. I'm really looking forward to hearing about the work you were doing in Indonesia, along with the story of how God prepared you for that work and led you there in the first place. So welcome to the Plain Faith Podcast, and thank you for joining us for this episode. Well, hey, thanks for inviting me to be part of this. I'm really excited to spend some time talking to you about a job that I absolutely love. Oh, that is great. We look so forward uh, to hearing from you. So why don't, we, why don't we kick things off by just learning a little bit more about you? For example, where are you from? Where did you grow up? And, and tell us about your, your family and so forth. Yeah, sure. That's great. So uh, I'm actually from your neck of the woods. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, and my wife is as well. Um, I grew up actually in western New York and then moved down to Georgia when I was uh, almost a teenager and really consider that to be my home. Uh, both of my parents are, have been in full-time ministry for their entire careers and um, really enjoyed growing up uh, on a Christian camp. My dad was a camp director and so I had a huge backyard with lots of fun stuff to do and uh, people kind of always around and lots of great people who influenced my life. Um, I have a big brother and a big sister, and so I'm the youngest uh, of the family, and I'm the only one that's in a technical field. Um, parents in ministry, big brother in ministry, and my mom or my sister is raising her family. So, um, you know, really, really blessed by such a great family. The other thing I have is um, kind of a, a family who has a background in missions. Um, I'm the first guy in my family to uh, be a pilot. 
and to be a missionary, but extended family. I have had people all over the world from Africa to the Middle East, um, and then people who have been in full-time missions, you know, just in America. So uh, it's really cool to have a great wealth of knowledge that I've been able to uh, pull from and uh, a great support base of family who are completely encouraging and supportive of what we do here. Very cool. So tell me about your wife and your two boys. Yeah. So uh, my wife and I met uh, actually in North Georgia at the camp where my dad was the director. Uh, We met when we were 14 and we were just kind of friends throughout all of our teenage years and got married when we were 23 back in 2007. And now we have two awesome little boys. Our first is Cade and he's six years old. He was born in Texas. And then Weston is our youngest son. He's two and a half now. And he was born in Jakarta, Indonesia. Uh, after an emergency C-section in a third world country. So that was a pretty exciting story that we had there. (laughs) And, uh, you know, props to my wife. She is awesome. And for her to be able to do that without, you know, she didn't complain. She just did it with so much joy and uh, really blessed to have her. Uh, She's so supportive and she is completely bought into what we're doing here. And uh, really could not do this without her. She's she's just fantastic. So So what age do you... Would you say that you became a follower of Jesus for yourself? Yeah, you know, it wasn't until I was 19, actually. Um, I, I spent most of my teenage years thinking that I was following Jesus, right? And did all the right things, went to church, uh, was involved in youth group. I was involved in a band that was leading worship um, in North Georgia and all these different things. Uh, after high school, I moved out and was living with some friends and really became pretty unsatisfied with some things that I was allowing into my life. Um, and very literally one morning I woke up and just kind of felt the Lord say to me, you know, Pete, I created you for so much more than this. I did not create you for these toxic things that you're allowing into your life. And so I literally rolled out of bed and packed up my clothes and put them in my car and called my mom and dad and said, hey, I'm coming home and I need your help. And they said, great, what, you know, what can we do? And so that began um, about a year-long process of me asking hard questions and finding answers. Um, and it was through that process of me reading and studying and my parents really investing in the questions that I was having um, that I really began a relationship with Jesus during that point. Um, so for me, it wasn't an overnight thing. It was a process of um, what am I looking for in life? What is it that I actually believe? And then really finding the answers to those questions. All right. Very good. I appreciate you sharing that. So then tell us about your two things. One, your call to missions. Also, your passion for aviation which one of those came first, and then how did they kind of come together? Yeah. So I had a grandfather on my mom's side, and he was a, a staff sergeant for the Army Air Corps, served under General Patton um, in World War II. And um, he, so he had a scrapbook at his house. And as a kid, five, six, seven years old, I'd go over to his house, and the first thing I would do is I would pull out this scrapbook And it was full of pictures of airplanes and reconnaissance photos because he worked for a recon unit flying P-38 Lightnings. So, you know, he wasn't a pilot himself, but he loved airplanes because of of that time that he spent uh, in France. And 
he would just spend hours with me talking about each picture. And then the next time I would go a few months later, we'd do the same thing. We'd, you know, I'd ask the same questions and he would very patiently answer the same things. And um, that was really what began my love for aviation. So I kind of grew up, you know, building model airplanes and um, thinking, man, wouldn't it be so cool to be a pilot? But I don't know if that'll ever happen, right? So um, fast forward to me finally deciding to follow Jesus, right? I moved back in with my parents, like I shared a minute ago. And um, during that time, I discovered that my dad's best friend was a flight instructor. He's a man of God. And he called me up one day and he said, hey, uh, I need you to come down to the airport. I want to take you flying. I'm like, what is going on? Where's the airport? And he goes, oh, it's just a mile from your house. So I show up and you know, there's this little Cessna 172 sitting there, and I'm thinking, well, what are we going to do in this little, you know, bucket of rust? And uh, he puts me in the left seat, and the next thing I know, we're taking off, and I'm flying. And that began, um, you know, the next couple years of flight lessons, where this guy just really invested in me, and that was the door that opened up to my call to missions, because I knew, okay, Lord, I'm following you now. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. But here are the things that I like to do, you know, and, and, and what do you want me to do? I don't know. So I'm flying airplanes, I'm studying, I'm learning about the Lord. And it came across uh, Genesis chapter 12 where God says to Abraham, you know, leave your country, leave your family, leave behind all these things that are important to you and go to the land that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make clear to you. All right, what does he say? Go to the land that I will show you. And I thought, oh man, okay, Lord, I think, I think this is it. And suddenly I'm, I'm brought back to these memories of reading books as a kid, right? I read Jungle Pilot. I read Through Gates of Splendor about, um, you know, the martyrs in Ecuador. And the Lord is just using all of these things to bring back what I think was a call at a very young age to, to now, to me being a 19-year-old kid saying, here, Pete, this is what your life has been leading up to. I've been building this story, this narrative for you, and now I'm putting all the pieces together. And so that, that's kind of how all that began. That's really neat, and I like the way you said it, just sort of the pieces came uh, together, and it, it was really sort of simultaneously with the aviation and the call to missions. They kind of worked hand in hand. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It was really at the same time, yeah. So would you have any advice for someone who is – maybe listening to this episode and wrestling themselves with a call to missions, any help that you could give them as they're working through that? Or if you could go back and tell your 19 year old self something, uh, what would you say? Yeah. You know, the Lord speaks to all of us in really different ways. So I would say pay attention to the circumstances that are around you and to the people that are around you, because the Lord is not just placing people in your lives um, randomly. He's placing them there very specifically. And so when he places somebody there who is leading you towards missions and encouraging you towards missions, you know, follow that open door, go through it and keep going. Don't stop until the Lord closes a door in your face and says, nope, that's not the one I want you to go through. Uh, oftentimes our call to missions can be very unclear. We can say, okay, I think I want to go overseas and I don't know what that means. And how do I do that? Right? The Lord's going to take care of all of that. We don't have to worry about the details. We just need to follow his leading and stick with it. 
sometimes it's the persevering part that's the most difficult, especially when you're in a technical field like flight training. You know, you know, Jimmy, that flight training can be really difficult sometimes and frustrating. And so, yeah. uh, you know, sticking with it, persevering through the tough things is really what the Lord is going to use to sharpen your character, um, to build your experience, and then eventually to put you exactly where he wants you, wherever that be in world missions. Okay. Well, thank you so much uh, for sharing that. I'm sure that will be helpful advice to, to someone who is listening. So uh, we've talked about the way that you developed a, a passion for aviation. You've begun to, to talk about your flight training with this uh, individual who was a friend of your father's. So tell us the, the bigger picture about your flight training. Where did it go from you working with this guy to um, getting to where you were through your ratings and, and so forth? Yeah, sure. So uh, I started at Lumpkin County Airport in North Georgia, up in Dahlonega, Georgia. And my flight instructor, Gene, was just uh, an amazing man, a man of God, and he had a, a military background. And he really got me off. Uh, on the right foot. In fact, I would say the Lord used him very specifically to give me a very solid uh, initial education. So I did my entire private pilot license training with him, um, and he gave me such a great foundation for stick and rudder skills and basic navigation and those things that uh, we really depend on every day. From there, I went to Laterno University, and uh, they have a program there that allows you to do your uh, all your flight ratings, as well as your A&P certificate. So I started on that, and that was a pretty long journey. I spent five years out there, you know, struggling through flight training, struggling through um, getting my A&P. I was not a natural mechanic, and I'm not naturally a technical guy, but uh, the Lord helped me get through that. So at Laterno, we did, I did my instrument, I did my tailwheel ratings, I did my high performance, I did my uh, multi-engine, and single commercial, and then I moved on to uh, become a flight instructor and actually taught there at Laterno for three years. And if you've ever talked to a flight instructor, you know that it's when you begin teaching something that you really begin learning it. And um, you know this from from your flight training experience and from your time uh, working towards your CFI certificate. Um, that's when you really get into the depths of, of aviation knowledge. So for three years, I taught there at Laterno, and that was really what solidified in me my calling towards aviation because I thought, you know, the Lord is really helping me do this, and he's placing people in my life that are uh, mentoring me and urging me towards the mission field. And so uh, there was one guy out there named Daryl, and he had just come back from uh, Indonesia, actually, where he was serving with NAF, and he and I started instructing at Laterno the same year. And we became fast friends, and he quickly became one of my mentors. Um, and so he spent a lot of time in my office um, giving me advice, correcting me on things that I was doing wrong with my students, uh, correcting me on things that I was doing wrong in my own flight training, and even in my own life. You know, he was discipling me, not just as a pilot, but as a man. And uh, what a great influence he was. And so finished out my degree, my A&P license, my commercial, my CFI stuff there, and then continued on uh, full-time teaching for a year at Laterno University. All right. So what was the program like there? Is it a, is, I'm assuming it's a part 141? Yeah, that's right. It's, yeah, it's a 141 program and they're flying, um, 
Satabrias, tailwheel Satabrias, uh, Cessna mm-hmm. 172s with a G1000, and they're flying Diamond Twin Stars with a G1000. They also have a 206, I believe, that they're using for high-performance training. So um, when I was there, they were not doing um, as much tailwheel training as they are now. And actually now they're teaching you uh, to get your private license in the Satabria. So you start out with, with really having to master good stick and rudder skills. And I think that's a mm-hmm. great way to start. Uh, it's really setting people up for success in the long term. No matter what kind of airplane you're flying, whether you're flying a 777 or a 206 or a Cessna Caravan, having good stick and rudder skills is imperative to being a good pilot. So it, it's really cool to hear how that th- that's going there. Um, 141 school, you know, is very structured and I bounced around with a variety of instructors and was able to gain experience and little lessons from each one of them. And so that built a mosaic of my flight training, all these people speaking in little bits at a time that builds my, uh, perspective and builds my training and builds decision-making all those things that we consider to be so important. Um, do a multi-engine was, um, Man, that was challenging. The Diamond Twin Star, I don't know if you've ever flown that, but um, the the Lycoming-powered Diamond Twin Stars require a ton of rudder pressure uh, when you've got an engine failure. And so it just really teaches you to handle the airplane. You just do what you got to do. So that was was really good as well. But being in the 141 environment, the structure is fantastic. Um, You've got people above you, your chief pilot, and... Uh, all the other assistant chief pilots that are doing check rides and teaching classes. What a wealth of information for me to go to, walk into their office and say, I'm struggling with this. I don't understand this concept and I don't know how to teach it. And they can just pour into you and help you understand stuff. And uh, that was just priceless to me to have those guys around. Well, great. I appreciate you you sharing about uh, your time at Laterno. I, I know it is an outstanding a uh, mm-hmm. place to to do your your training, and I'm I'm glad to hear you uh, tell that that process to others. What about someone who might be listening, who is heading into flight training to become a missionary pilot, or is maybe in in the middle of it? Would you have some advice uh, for them as they are working through those things? Yeah, you know, I I personally really struggled through some flight training times, feeling like I wasn't a good student. Uh, questioning my calling to the mission field. Lord, I'm not doing a good job. I can't seem to learn the things that I need to learn. Are you not calling me to this? What's going on? Like I said earlier, you kind of have to push through those hard times. As a flight instructor, I know that students reach plateaus, and they're going to have to struggle through those plateaus before they can begin to learn again. And, you know, I I don't really know how to help people through that, but it's a a difficult process, and it's a sharpening process that the Lord used for them for us. The other thing I would say is that during flight training is a great time to focus, really focus in on, on two things. One, mastering your craft as a pilot. That is your time. You're focused in school and, you know, you may never have another time in your life to really focus in on it. That's the time because you've got people around you that can support you and answer your questions. The other thing you can do is you can spend time with the Lord. What a great way to combine your two, your two passions for Jesus and for airplanes and to solidify where, where is it that the Lord is leading me with this? Is he leading me to the airlines? Is he leading me to be a cargo operator somewhere? Am I going to go fly a, a caravan on floats in the Bahamas? Am I going to go fly King Airs overseas? 
Am I going into mission aviation? Um, using that time wisely, I think, is such an important thing. Okay, very good. And, and you know, one thing you came to mind as you said that is just because it's hard doesn't mean God's not calling me to do it, right? And, and some we so often think that, oh, this is hard, so God must not be wanting me to do this. Well, no. I mean, look at the individuals in the Bible. It was often hard, uh, not not always easy. And so, yeah, when when we hit those hard times, it doesn't mean that it's not something God wants us to do. It just means that He's using that difficulty to prepare us for something down the road. Yep, that's right. So Pete, tell us more about the place that you're serving in now. What is it like and how is it different from your home and and what you have been used to? And what are some of the things that have been most difficult for you and your wife to adjust to there? Yeah. So we live in uh, Wamana, Papua, Indonesia. So we're on the island of New Guinea. And uh, this half of the island happens to be part of Indonesia. Um, Mission Aviation Fellowship has been here for about 63 years now on the island, I think. And it is amazing to serve here, and the people here are fantastic. Um, To to answer your question about how is it different, uh, it'd be easier to compare the things uh, that are not different than the differences. Because everything, I mean, if you can imagine living in a foreign country where everything is different, going to the grocery store is different, driving is different, you know, the language you use is different. Your thought processes are different. It's all different, right? And so um, it takes time to adjust to that. It's not easy. Um, learning a language is hard. Uh, learning to go grocery shopping at an open-air market where the fish smells awful, uh, that's, that's not an easy thing to do. But with time, you know, it normalizes. And you begin to find your own routine and your own ways of doing things. And you know, eventually you don't even notice it anymore. Um, but it's not to say it's, that it's easy. It's not like I have a target down the street where I can just go, you know, buy my favorite barbecue sauce. Cause I don't, um, we have to have that sent in in packages that my parents send. But, um, you know, we just love, love being here in Indonesia and it's a great place with great people. And, uh, I, I can't think of a, of a more exciting place to serve. So how did you end up there and what was the process that led to you narrowing in on Indonesia as the place that you would serve as a missionary aviator? Yeah. So the first uh, step in that is really deciding what organization do I go with? Do I go with Mission Aviation Fellowship? Do I go with JARS? Do I go with New Tribes? Um, there's all these organizations that I could choose from. And that seemed like a really daunting task for us. You know, what if I choose wrong? Or what if what if they don't like me? What if they don't accept me? Um, that's, that's a pretty difficult decision to make. So um, my wife and I were very blessed. When I was working at Laterno as a flight instructor, she was working as an admissions counselor. And Laterno decided, you know what? You two are the perfect couple to represent us at the Oshkosh Air Show. And so they sent us up there, and we uh, had a booth set up in the missions tent representing Laterno University and got to rub shoulders with everybody up there. And what we discovered is that we wanted to find an organization that matched our personality. Each organization has its own personality. They have certain types of people. They have certain ways of thinking. They have certain types of ministry that they're focused on. And so uh, for us to be able to sit down and eat lunch and dinner 
with missionaries from all these different organizations was a huge blessing. And for us, that helped solidify that we felt that MAF and Pete and Ashley Greenwald were really a good fit. And so we decided to pursue MAF um, quite seriously. So after um, college, I graduated and we went straight to Nampa, Idaho and did our technical evaluations with MAF. And if you don't know what that is, it's a two-week-long interview where all of your flight training and all of your mechanicking and your life story is really looked at in depth. And MAF then decides whether or not um, you're a good fit for the organization, and it's us deciding whether or not we're a good fit for the organization as well. And so MAF chose to accept us after that, and um, you know we had some school debt to pay off, and we were pregnant with our first child, and so we decided to take a year. Uh, I continued teaching there at Letourneau, and then we joined MAF. Uh, so that was July of 2011 when we joined MAF. The way MAF works is, because it's a big organization, they serve in so many countries around the world, uh, they look at the personality of the people that are joining, and they actually assign you to your field. Now you get a little bit of say, and you know if you really don't feel good about it, then uh, you get to say so. But MAF assigned us to Indonesia, and we were so excited because that's where we really felt the Lord was, was leading our hearts. We were excited about the type of ministry that's going on here, excited about just being in this part of the world was pretty fun. And uh, we knew a lot of people that had been in Indonesia or currently were in Indonesia. And listening to their stories about the work that they're doing, the ministry that they're helping with, and that, uh, the lives that their kids are leaving, leading, that was really exciting to us. So uh, Indonesia was just, we thought it was a great fit. Cool. So one thing, maybe take a few steps back. You talked about your, your call to the missions and, and, and how that played out in conjunction with your passion for aviation. Tell me about uh, how uh, your wife, Ashley, felt. When did she start feeling led in, in a similar direction, and, and how did those those two desires come together? Yeah, you know, this is probably one of the most important pieces of the puzzle um, because as a married couple, if both of us are not completely on board with what we're doing, uh, there's no way that we could live here. Um, but my wife uh, had a mission trip in college that she went on, and she just really began to feel the Lord leading her towards overseas missions. She had no idea what that looked like, right? She and I were not dating at the time. We were just friends, and we talked occasionally. And um, when we finally started talking a little bit more seriously to each other, I said to her, look, uh, here's Mission Aviation Fellowship. Here's what they do. This is where I feel the Lord is leading me. And she said, Pete, this is the Lord's answer to him leading me because I was saying, I was wondering how I'm going to get overseas, feeling a call to missions, but, but saying, I don't know how it's going to work out. And here the Lord's bringing me a man who wants to do the same thing. And so her having an individual call to missions and me having an individual call to missions, which then came together, we think that's such an important thing because it's not just one of you tagging along with the other, but you're both completely sold on what the Lord is doing in your life. And it requires both of us to be on board to make this whole thing work. Okay, so I understand you do your technical evaluation with, with MAF. And then mm-hmm. after that, I'm sure there is some flight training that takes place mm-hmm. with them to, to get you prepared for some pretty crazy flying, right? That's right. 
but that's just a piece of it. What about the practical side and, and preparing you and your wife for the big changes that you're going to uh, face when you when you land in this country on the other side of the world? How do they prepare you for that? Yeah, they did a great job preparing us for that. Um, the initial um, classes that we take at MAF are all about uh, MAF's global vision, what they feel the Lord is leading them to, their, their focus on ministry. And then you leave that and you go and you do support raising. And that's a pretty uh, trying process. If you've never had to ask people for money, it's not easy to be able to convey your vision to somebody else about what you want to do with your life and then say, I need your help to do it. Wow, that's challenging. But MAF prepared us really well for that. After support raising, they had us back in Idaho for about three months. And we did not only flight training and uh, maintenance training, but a lot of cultural classes that were preparing us for things like communication issues and um, just a lot of the cross-cultural things that you would never think of because you've never been overseas, right? Or you've never lived overseas. And so how do you know about the little ins and outs of living within a certain culture? And so they were preparing us for the stress that can be involved, the issues that your kids can face as they're overseas, the issues that your marriage can face as you're overseas. And they really helped us to, to stay focused on the Lord during that time to make sure that our trust was in Him and to trust Him to help us learn this new culture and this new place that we live. And I'll tell you what, to this day, there's stuff that we have not mastered. You know, In fact, we've probably mastered absolutely nothing. But... Little by little, we're learning lessons about how to live. It's like, it's like becoming a child again. I go back to knowing no language and not knowing how to do anything, and you feel like a two-year-old. But then with a little bit of time, you learn the language, your vocabulary gets better, you learn how people think, you learn how the town works and how to buy groceries and how to get your internet set up, and all those little tiny things add up, and they help you learn to be basically an adult in this new place. So, you know, I'm so thankful for the, the work that MAF did to prepare us for these hard things, also for a lot of the fun things. And uh, so th- those classes were really, really influential for us. Okay, and so when you arrive in, in Indonesia, there's other MAF personnel there. How did they help you with the, with the transition? And how have those people become your close friends, I would imagine? Yeah, sure. So um, our first year in Indonesia was language school. And probably the hardest and most fun year of my life was spent in language school. Uh, We were met by our regional director who took us to our home a couple hours away, kind of in the jungle of Indonesia and central Java. And uh, he introduced us to the ladies that would be working in our house and cooking for us and taking care of our kids while we were learning language. And um, then they said, if you need anything, call us. And there were a couple other MAF families that were there doing language school as well. So they had a little bit of experience that we were able to uh, ask them to help us with things. And um, the rest of it, you just kind of have to learn on your own. We went to language school about uh, two to four hours a day. And every day you get a little bit, little bit more fluent with the language and a little bit more comfortable with what you're saying and how you're saying it. Um, so that first year was really important to us. It also gave us time without having to worry about 
flying in the mountains and bad weather and all these different things, it gave us time to adapt to the culture and learn how to communicate properly with people and learn how not to communicate with people. We had a lot of those scenarios. Um, so MAF did a great job of supporting us through language school. And then it was after that that we received our assignment and uh, began serving uh, in the field. So Pete, what was something about being on the mission field that you simply did not expect and took you completely by surprise? Yeah, I talked a minute ago about um, feeling like a child. And I'll tell you what, there's nothing that can hurt your pride more than, than not understanding something. And the process of learning a culture and learning a language was really difficult for my pride because I wanted desperately to communicate with people. I had this felt need to be good at language and be a good missionary and um, you know, be, be excellent for the Lord. And I'll tell you what, he just tore me down, tore me down to where I just felt like, Lord, I don't know what I have left to offer because I am so bad at language and I am so bad at, um, learning culture. And I just feel like I'm constantly behind by 10 steps. I just don't understand anything that's going on around me. And I had no way to know that that was coming. Um, I'd never done it before, you know? There was no practice sessions for um, learning how to learn a new language and culture. And so that was a pretty tough thing for me. Like I said earlier, with time, it gets better. But I think everybody I know has experienced stuff like that that you just didn't see coming. And it it really can uh, knock you off balance. But thankfully, the Lord was there to help us out as we uh, transitioned through language learning into relationships with local people to eventually being able to, you know, have real communication with people. So I'll tell you what, though, still to this day, uh, walking around here in my town, uh, we've been in Indonesia coming up on five years now, and I still feel like a kid. Uh, I still don't know what's going on most of the time. I still go, why, why, are we, why do we do things this way? Why is the driving so crazy? Why is it so hard for me to go to the market and buy bananas? But... It's all part of the sharpening process, and I had a, a pastor one time say to me, you know what, Pete, I think uh, for a lot of missionaries, going to the mission field is less about what you do for the people, and it's more about what God is doing in your life. And I think on it now and go, yeah, I, I, am, I am probably so messed up that God had to remove me from my culture and from things that I was comfortable with and put me in a place where I was literally a little kid again so that he could get a hold of me and speak to me and speak into my life the way that he wanted to. And so it's all just part of the process. So that was a pretty serious conversation. Maybe you have a, a funny story to share about your transition, something having to do with cultural differences or language <laughs> differences that caused some sort of confusion, and, and now you can look back on it and laugh. Do you have anything like <laughs> that to share? I, I do, actually. Um, so in language school, our, our neighbor was also our landlord, And he'd had a a bunch of MAF families come through in the past, and he knew that we were there to learn language. And so uh, he would he would knock on my door if I wasn't over there in the evening. So come on, you got to come over to my house, and we're gonna eat some weird Indonesian food, and we're just gonna practice language, right? So he had a bunch of people over one night, and they were asking me all these questions. And um, the word for foreigner and the word for goose, you know, like a goose, geese. Mm-hmm. Are, are not, um, well, they're very similar. Let's put it that way, right? Uh, 
So they were trying to ask me one night if we eat geese in America. And I responded very quickly by saying, yes, we eat foreigners in America. And it took me, it took me the next five or six minutes to figure out what I'd said wrong because everybody was cackling so loud that I was like, well, you know, maybe I'm just really funny. I don't know. Um, but yeah, yeah, it took me a while to figure that one out. But, uh, you know, stuff like that happens all the time. Probably most of them are, are not appropriate enough to share because they often involve stuff that's just <laughs> <laughs> really funny and, and, and you typically not, not appropriate to share publicly. But, um, man, right. stuff like that happens all the time. Yeah, this is a family-friendly show, so let's. let's <laughs> right. <keep it> there. <laughs> but, you, but you're correct. I, I know what you're getting at. Yeah. So, so, so let's transition to talking about the uh, the airplanes and and the flying part of yeah. the work that you're you're doing there. Tell tell me about the planes that you fly and and work with, and what type of of flying and and work that you uh, normally do. Yeah, I'm sure. So uh, I fly a Cessna Grand Caravan. Uh, it's a legacy model. They call it legacy because it's old, right? Because it, it doesn't have the G1000, the nice glass panels in it anymore. So um, fly an old steam gauge airplane with uh, the Garmin 530-430 GPSs. And, um, you know, the Caravan is a big airplane. It's the biggest thing I've ever flown. I can carry 1,300 kilos of cargo. Um, you can do the math on that. About 20, 26, 2,700 pounds of cargo. Uh, every day on my first flight. It is a big airplane. It's a lot to manage. Um, the environment here in Wamana, uh, we're up at around 5,100 feet elevation, and we've got mountains surrounding us on all four sides that go up as high as 14,000 feet. And so it is mountain flying all day long. You just can't get away from it. And so we deal with all the classic mountain flying things, mountain wave turbulence, weather in the valleys, rain in the valleys, wind just whipping through some of these valleys that you have to learn to deal with. And so, you know, it can be pretty intimidating sometimes to go out and go flying. Thankfully, MEF has a great safety culture, and they say, you know what, if you don't feel comfortable going, don't go. It's not worth it. Uh, we can wait till the next day if we need to. Um, and so having that freedom to make those safe decisions is is really important to us. But um, have you ever flown a, a Cessna Caravan? Biggest Cessna I've ever flown is a, a 182. Okay, right. Well, it's, well, it's a little bigger than a 182. What's uh, a yeah, right. probably about, about 3,000 pounds gross weight, I would assume, out of a 182. So uh, the Caravan, you know, single engine, turboprop. Um, wingspan is about 52 feet. And we have uh, some pretty awesome modifications on this thing that allow us to carry extra weight. And so I'll take off in the mornings at around 9,000 pounds or so. Um, before those modifications are done, the airplane takes off at a much lighter weight and it performs a lot better. Now with all this extra weight in the airplane, well, it, it takes a little bit of extra work to get a gross weight grand caravan up to these high altitudes that we fly at. And so we do a lot of planning ahead. We have to plan our climbs. We can't just turn towards a mountain and, and assume that we'll climb over it. And we zigzag back and forth as we're trying to get up uh, to these mountain passes and and we just barely cross them, and then we descend back down, and we drop into our little valley that we're going to land in. Um, so it's, it's actually really, really fun. But it requires a lot of management of a heavy airplane and an engine that is um, quite a bit different than what's on a Cessna 172 or 182. And So you, all, you also serve as the mechanic on the plane that you fly? 
Yeah, many of us serve as mechanics. Um, I'm licensed here in Indonesia. Honestly, I don't really do a whole lot of maintenance. Uh, that Most of our caravan maintenance happens at a different base um, down in Sentani. So I actually manage all of our electronic flight bags for our entire fleet. We've got 10 airplanes here in Papua, uh, Kodiaks and caravans. And so um, when I arrived here, they said, you know what? Uh, we've heard you're good with uh, electronic things. So would you put together some electronic flight bags for us? And so we have uh, an iPad for each aircraft, and in it contains all of our airstrip directory information, uh, a lot of our general route information, instrument approach procedures, you know, our um, technical manuals that we follow, POH, and all those different things. And so I spend about a day or two a week managing all the data that is involved in that. Um, and so that, that keeps me pretty busy, that along with flying. Um, every now and then I do some maintenance stuff as well, uh, but we also have maintenance specialists that are here that are not pilots, and they do a fantastic job of maintaining our airplanes. Those guys work, they work really hard, and they do a great job. Okay, so you've piqued my curiosity a little bit about the mm-hmm. electronic flight bags, which really it just got me thinking, what, what is the, you know, we have sectional charts and approach plates that are published by uh, the government and Jeppesen and other folks like that here, what sort of thing are you working with there? And is there a specific software that you're using on the iPad? Just go into a little bit more detail there. Yeah. Yeah. This is a really good question. So in the States, uh, we've got ForeFlight. Most everybody uses ForeFlight and what a fantastic tool. Uh, unfortunately Mm -hmm. we don't have, it it doesn't support our part of Indonesia. Um, and so I had to kind of come up with a system on my own. So we use a, a software called GoodReader. And it um, is meant to be a PDF reader. Right. And yep. it syncs, syncs to our servers. And so I, I uh, put all of our data on the servers and arrange the file structure. And then each iPad, when you open up GoodReader, uh, that's kind of where we live with our EFB. I also made a sectional, actually, um, kind of combined some sectionals that we had. And, and I was able to put those on the iPad and um, we've got a couple other things that we use on there, like voice recorders and, you know, the camera comes in handy every now and then. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff that that iPad is useful for. So um, really, really, it's, it, it's an important tool, and it, it eliminates a lot of paper and allows us to do electronic updates. Uh, we have 145 airstrips or so that we're serving, and to be able to update those one at a time whenever we need to um, is a really helpful thing. We also use Jeppesen. We have a Jeppesen subscription, and uh, we just uh, download the current approach plates and procedures and stuff to our uh, computer, and then we upload those to the server. So that's a it's a pretty easy way to do it. It's not the most user friendly way to do it necessarily, but uh, it works really well for for our operations here. So you're you're basically scanning sectional charts and approach plates and converting those to PDFs, and those are being uh, sync to good reader on the iPads. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, and then okay, w- within the file structure, we just kind of, we make it easy for pilots to figure out where they need to go to get certain information. So it works pretty well. It's just like navigating a Four flight better watch out, huh? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> if well, only. Very cool. That, yeah, that, that, that was a little bit of a tangent, but I, I thought I was interested in, in that. And I, I think probably there's some folks uh, listening that would be as well because we just take it for granted back home right we don't uh, think about that sort of thing we we know we can get what we want whether it's in paper or, or electronically and 
uh, you're, you've got a whole different set of, of challenges to deal with, deal with there. And Hey, on that line of thinking, why mm-hmm. don't you talk a little bit about how the flying on that you're doing there differs from the flying that you were used to back home? Yeah. Wow. Um, it's a, it's a whole different world, you know, um, here in Papua, I would say 95% of my airstrips are not flat. So I'm dealing typically with 4% or more slope. Uh, I have a couple where in the touchdown zone, I've got 16% slope and one that goes up to 24% slope just before the parking area. And so just that in itself is a whole new thing to master. Um, A lot of these airstrips are tucked down in tiny little valleys where you pass a certain point and you can't go around anymore. And so you have to make sure that things are set up really well. Um, and you know, that brings up a good point about just a little flight discipline thing here. If I could talk about that for a second. Um, you know, one of the things that we, one of the luxuries we have in America, you could say, not in all places, but in many places is nice, long paved runways with easy go around procedures. Right. And it's easy to get yourself into the mindset of, yeah, okay. I've got this nice long runway in front of me and, and I can land wherever on it and no big deal right? But here you've got to keep yourself in this mindset of saying, you know, I don't always have the option to go around. I have to be in what we call the abort mindset, right? So even though the weather looks great, um, you know, coming up on what we call our key position or our abort point, I have to constantly be saying to myself, you know what, should I go around? Do I need to go around right now? Is everything looking good? Or can I continue? Because once I continue past this point, there's no going around. I got to take my lumps, however they fall. Um, you know, so it's a, that's a really good thing for future aviators to think about as they're putting themselves in the mindset of what does it take to fly in these mountains sometimes? Now, MAF gives us fantastic training and it has paid off for me big time a couple times where you get up to a abort point and you're just feeling uncomfortable. Well, I could do it. The weather looks fine, but I feel uncomfortable for some reason. Okay, and you go around. Two minutes later, you get a call from the guy in the airstrip that said, yeah, the wind just got really blustery down here, and it's really bad, and you should go home. Don't land. Well, thank you, MAF, for good training, because that really saved my bacon today. Um, so those are just kind of some of, the, some of the little details, the techniques that we deal with as we're flying these mountains, you know. So the other thing that we deal with here is, you know, like I said, there's no mountains in Texas. Here, I've got mountains, uh, some places up to 16,000 feet, depending on where you are on the island. And I'm often down in narrow valleys in a heavy airplane um, trying to navigate weather and wind and get into a, a little tiny airstrip that's really quite challenging to land at. So managing things like my turn radius or my energy or making sure that I always have an out. Where am I, where am I going when something goes wrong? Those are things you just have to constantly keep in mind here. Whereas, uh, you, you know, not that you don't do that in America, it's just maybe not as uh, important to you because uh, there's no open fields for me to land in. You know, if my engine quits, what have I got? I've got a, a rocky river down below me that's full of rapids or I've got the side of a mountain. And so, uh, you know, I'm just so grateful for the training that we've gotten. But, you know, it takes a really uh, focused mindset to keep yourself in a place where you're constantly looking for outs and looking for the safe thing to do. And you're willing to turn around and go home when you need to, because sometimes the best thing you can do is just turn around and go home and not even try to land. 
Very good. And that, that's good advice no matter where uh, you're yeah. flying. But, yeah, absolutely. But particularly, absolutely. Uh, particularly where, where you're at, you know, you're used to flying a lot in Texas and um, I fly in Alabama and there's lots of fields in, in those yeah. places and uh, lots of good places to land. And it's easy to play the uh, where would I land now game. Um, yeah, that's right. But I, that's but, right. but I imagine in Indonesia, uh, it's a little bit more challenging to play yeah. that game. Yeah. One of the things we think about here quite often is, um, is what we call margin. And, you know, margin, I would define it as um, the space between where I currently am and having a problem. Right. Mm-hmm. And I want to have lots of space. I want to have lots of margin so that if something goes wrong, I still have extra space. Right. Well, I think this applies to, um, you know, for all of us pilots out there, this applies um, no matter where we're flying. It's easy to push weather. It's easy to say, well, I've done that before. I could do it again. But you know what? We always have to maintain margin. And if I'm pushing right up to the edge of what I can do, the limits of my skill, the limit of the airplane performance, I have no margin. I have no safety margin. And it's such an important thing for us aviators to think about no matter where we are in the world. It also translates over into life lessons, right? We think about uh, managing stress. I've talked about stress a little bit and things that we face here in the field. And um, we have to make sure that in our life, we've got margin. You know, if I fill my glass up too much, eventually the water's going to run out. And I hope that with, you know, having kids and, and um, you know, having a house or managing a car, whatever it is that we've got, those, all those things, they they pour a little bit more water into our glass. And if we're not being careful and if we're not taking time to uh, manage our levels, it's easy for us to overflow. And all of a sudden we have no margin. We can't deal with extra things that are coming at us in life, you know? Um, so that's a, one of the ways that I carry a flying lesson over into life is to make sure that we've always got, always, always, always have extra margin. Good advice. Thank you. So what would you say is the most exciting part about being a missionary pilot? there's a lot of things to choose from, you know, the flying is obviously fun. Living overseas in the tropics is obviously fun. Uh, My favorite part though, is getting to know the people that we serve because you get to hear the stories. Um, When did you first learn about Jesus? What was life for you? What was life like before you heard the gospel and what's life like now after that you've heard the gospel? Tell me how Mm -hmm. that is different for you. Those are the really exciting things for me. Um, a lot of what we do here is supporting missionaries who live in the jungle and hearing about um, their cultural faux pas that we were talking about earlier is, is always fun, but also hearing about how the Lord is changing hearts and people. Man, that is good stuff. That's why we're here. Talk to me some more about how you are supporting missionaries that live out in, in the jungle and, and how... Uh, you make it possible for them to do the 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 front the real frontline work that they're doing. Yeah, sure. Um, a lot of the people that we support live in villages where they're you either walk there or you fly there. There's no road. There's there's no other way to get there. And uh, so we're kind of their lifeline to the modern world. Uh, if they have a medical emergency, we go get them. If they need food, we take it to them. Um, if their kids need to go to school. We go get them and we take them to school. You know, that's, that's just kind of how we support these people. But more than that, um, just being able to transport them in and out as they're doing their work. They go in for a few weeks. 
they do some Bible translation work, they do some discipleship work, whatever it is that they're focusing on, then they come back out and they do all the other work that is involved in doing those things. So we just take them in and out. And to me, one of the funnest things is to go in and just be an encouragement to them. Because here they live in an isolated place, surrounded by people that don't speak their language, that don't know their culture, and they're there trying to learn their language and translate the Bible or do discipleship or start a church, you know, whatever it is that they're doing there, to go in and see a, a face that you know speaks the same language and understands things similarly to you. Oh, what a huge encouragement. And so uh, to be able to go and just say, hi, how are you doing? Have coffee with them, hear what's going on with them, be able to pray for them before you leave. You know, that those are some of the most important things that I think we do uh, as we're serving our missionaries interior. Yeah, that that's great. Very important each of those things that you mentioned. So, do you have a a, a favorite memory or or story, something that uh, you'll think back on for years and 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 be proud of that you were a part of or just thankful that you were able to witness it? Yeah, I sure do. Um, you know, I have lots of those memories, so it's kind of hard to choose from. Mm-hmm. Um, let, let me start, though. You can by share saying, more than one. Yeah, okay. Let me, let me start by saying that yeah, it's important to understand that not every flight we do has a profound impact. Um, a lot of the flights we do, I'm just carrying rice or noodles or, you know, building supplies. And I, I would say most of the flights that I'm doing, I'm, that's what I'm doing. These are important to the communities, but, it, you know, it's difficult sometimes to think, well, is this having any eternal impact? I don't know what's going on, right? But um, there are the flights that we do where you look at them and you go, wow, this, this was one of those impactful flights. So uh, we have a friend here that is really involved in education, and he wants education in Papua to, to really grow and to start teaching these kids to think critically and to become good, solid leaders in their community. And uh, it was about six months ago that I got to take a group of his teachers into a village where they were going to start a school for the very first time, and they were doing student selection, and they were looking for buildings, and I thought, man, the impact of this flight is way more far-reaching than I can ever imagine. Because the kids that they choose today or tomorrow, after I fly them in, those kids will eventually graduate from this school. And some of them will go on to be leaders in their community. Some of them might go on to work in the government. Some of them might go on to become missionaries themselves. And wow, what a huge, huge blessing to play such a small role in, uh, in being part of that, you know. And uh, we get to yeah, support a lot great. of different schools, yeah. Uh, there's a bunch of different schools that we support. Um, every once in a while, they get to go be part of one of the classes and hear the kids count in English or sing a song about the Lord or, you know, do something that's really fun. And it's just, oh man, it just brings so much joy to our hearts to see these young men and women who grew up here, hopefully one day become leaders in their community. So that's really cool. Um, you know, I've, I've done a bunch of others. Um, one of the coolest ones that I did was um, I took a guy into a village and for me, it was just a normal day of flying. I landed at this airstrip that was, you know, it's challenging, but it's one of our, one of our more beginner airstrips and park at the top. And I'm greeted by this crowd of people. What's going on? There's people with bows and arrows running around. They're all dressed up in their traditional, um, outfits. And I'm thinking, wow, this is a big deal. I wonder who it is that I brought in. And, uh, 
started asking around some of the guys that I know there, and they said, oh, yeah, uh, the guy that you brought in um, and his family have been away for 20 years, and for legal reasons, they were not able to come back. But you just reunited a family, a son with his dad, for the first time in 20 years. And I thought, oh, thank you, Lord, that I get, get to be part of this, you know. Um, it's so important, these little tiny things that we do, the impact that we have, it's so far-reaching that we'll never know this side of heaven. Um, but, you know, I think about even, even airline pilots and cargo pilots. They don't, know, they don't know who's in the back. They don't know what their passengers are, are traveling for. But, you know, they're part of the impact. Um, those people are traveling for funerals or weddings or all these different things that are important to them, you know. Um, aviation is such an impactful thing all around the world. And whether you're in Indonesia flying a Cessna caravan or a Quest Kodiak, or if you're, um, you know, in Dubai flying an A380 for Emirates, you know what, you still get to be part of the, the story that the Lord is writing for people. It's really cool. So you've, you've been in Indonesia for five years now, right? Mm-hmm, yep. And, you, you know, you've talked to me briefly about some of the good things. Uh, I imagine, though, it's not always been easy, and there have been uh, some struggles along the way, and, and I'm not just talking about maybe day-to-day difficulties, but uh, extended uh, struggles that have, have challenged you and your, your wife and your family. Would you be willing to share some of those with, with the audience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we're far away from family. It's, uh, it's 30 hours and a few thousand dollars for us to get back to family. And when we see friends having kids, you know, they're 10,000 miles away. We grew up with them, but we're not there when they have their first kid. Um, we're not there when their child gets diagnosed with a life-changing disease. Um, when our parents call us with um, health news, um, man, we're not there. That, that is tough for us to deal with. Um, knowing that my kids will not know their grandparents the same way that I knew my grandparents, that's a pretty tough thing for me to deal with. Um, and there's no, there's no answer to it. You know, thankfully now, we're not sending letters back and forth that take three months to, to get from here to America, right? We've got FaceTime and we've got Skype and all these different ways that we can communicate with each other. But there's no substitute for being present with a person. So it's those relational things that I think they take the biggest toll on us to know that we are so far away and in times of need, I can't even offer my best friends my presence. All I can do is send them a text that says, I'm praying for you, but that just seems so far disconnected from what I would like to do for them. So those are some of the, Mm. you know, that's just, that's the tip of the iceberg really of, of some of the stuff that we deal with. You know, for my wife, she often feels isolated. Here she is living in a community that is not her own. Her husband is out doing his thing during the day, and she's here with the kids. She just finished homeschooling our first for kindergarten, and he starts at the international school next year. But to not have a large group of friends around you is a pretty difficult thing, too. Um, we've got our teammates here. But, you know, just to be completely honest with you, when you live on a base with all your teammates, Sometimes you get sick of your teammates. You don't want to be around them anymore, right? You want to go be with uh, your friends that you're used to back in the States and 
uh, have conversations that are maybe a little bit easier. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty difficult to deal with the distance um, from our family and friends. I would say that's that that one weighs heavily on us quite frequently. Okay, I appreciate you being open and honest about that. And and the next question is about spiritual struggles. I, I imagine some of that spill spills over into your your spiritual life as well. Uh, is is that true? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I was just on another conference call with somebody this morning, and they were saying, what can we do for you? And I said, we need Bible study materials, because we don't have great internet. I can't really stream my home church, you know, or the pastors that I like to listen to. Can't do that all the time. And so, um, being able to spend time in the Word is sometimes a difficult thing for us to, to do. Um, you know, I work 45 to 55 hours a week. Um, I've got little kids. Um, going grocery shopping takes way longer than it should, but it does. And all of those things can eat into your time. And suddenly you go, oh man, it's been a month. And I don't know the last time that I sat down and spent any time with the Lord. You know, because yeah. I'm so busy doing life that yeah. you, you just it, it just disappears. Where'd the time go? I don't know. And so, yeah, you know, maintaining a vibrant spiritual life over here is very difficult. Um, and, you know, honestly, it's not something that we've mastered. It's something that we struggle with every day. And we have to be really intentional about um, setting time aside to go spend time in the Word, go spend time watching a sermon. Uh, we have a, a church here that we go to on the weekends. It's a bunch of our missionary friends, and uh, we spend time singing together and watching a sermon together and those kinds of things. But um, to be away from your home church out of that body of believers is, is a pretty tough thing. Uh, you know, the other thing that can cause spiritual struggles is seeing some of the difficulties around you, seeing the extreme poverty that others live in, uh, seeing occasional violence, seeing the way that uh, other men treat their wives sometimes, you know. I'm um, talking about local people here. Um, man, that can, that can raise some pretty tough questions for me sometimes. And I think, well, Lord, how do I reconcile all these in my brain? You know, uh, here I am. I've got so much You've given me so, so much, and many of these people here just don't have that, and it's not easy to deal with the, the extreme poverty and um, the lack of knowledge and the lack of understanding that some people have, and I wonder, you know, Lord, how, do you're gonna, how are you going to help these people? What about them? So those are tough questions to answer, and, you know, I wonder if there is an answer sometimes, but mm -hmm. um, yeah. So when all of these sorts of struggles start piling up, whether it's just general life struggles, missing home, wanting to be with family and friends, or uh, spiritual struggles that, that you've discussed, what keeps you pressing forward uh, through those struggles to, till the time you get to the other side? You know, um, we had a good conversation with a friend recently as we were talking about struggling with our kids not knowing their grandparents very well. And our friend reminded us, you know, the Lord will redeem all of this. One day, on the other side, when we're all sitting around in heaven together, all of this time, all of the costs will be redeemed. We'll have time with our grandparents. We'll have time with our friends. Um, you know, what we're living now is just such a short 
period of time. So maintaining that eternal perspective is really an important thing. Um, beyond that, though, I also find it's important to have somebody that I can talk to. So I have a friend in America who I can just text and be completely honest with, and he does not judge me in the slightest, but he just says, you know what, that's hard, and I'm sorry that you're dealing with that, and let's pray together. And having somebody like that who could just be your black hole that you can share with completely openly is uh, really, I, I consider that a must-have uh, in this life that we live. I would say that's true for anybody, no matter what kind of lifestyle you live, right? Um, but yeah. for us over here, when when friends are often far away and um, maybe you don't want to share certain stuff with your teammates because you work so closely with them, um, you know, it's, it's just so important to have somebody like that. So um, that friend really keeps me going. Carrying an eternal perspective keeps me going. And being able to focus on the work that we're doing here and remind myself that I've got to think long-term. If I think day-to-day sometimes, it's, it's hard to see the impact that you might be having, you know, because the impact of the gospel is a life-changing thing. We know that lives, lives don't change overnight normally. It's normally a process of mm-hmm. growth and experience and all these different things. But, you know, here I'm a, I'm a pilot. I'm a goal-oriented guy. I'm going to go from A to B and then get back home, and that's my job, right? So I want to see results. But when I don't see results in an immediate sense, that can become pretty frustrating. So to continue thinking long-term, to think 10 and 15 and 20 and 100 years down the road, that really helps put into perspective some of the, the difficulties that we face here. Okay, well, thank you. That All of that was so good and, and encouraging to me, and I know uh, others will, will feel the same way. So kind of bringing things to, to a close, let me just ask you if you have any other uh, final suggestions or advice or encouragement for prospective missionary pilots. Hmm. I would just say this. If you feel the Lord leading you into mission aviation or just missions in general, pursue it with all that you've got. Even when it's hard, when you feel like Uh, maybe this isn't what I'm supposed to do. Keep going. Keep going until the Lord shuts the door in your face and turns you a different direction. But don't give up. Because if you give up, you might never know. You never know where the Lord's going to lead you. So we have to keep following His leading, pressing through the open doors. Maybe they're only cracked open, and we need to push them open a little bit. But if we give up, we're never going to know. Right? Hmm. Following the Lord is a huge adventure. We don't need to be relegated to lives of boredom, right? We follow the God of the universe. And so seek after that adventure. Seeking after the gospel, seeking after Jesus is an adventure. And we get to have fun and be part of the greatest story ever written. And so why would we back off? Why would we say, well, this is too hard? No, it's worth it. It is absolutely worth it. So I would say don't give up. Don't let yourself get discouraged. Don't let yourself get bought in to having a cushy life and a nice house and all these different things, you know. Sometimes you got to make tough decisions if you're seeking after Jesus. But man, it is always, always worth it. It's just not always easy. Okay, thank you. I wonder if there is a, a book or, or two that helped you in your, your uh, times where you were thinking about becoming a missionary or just a book that maybe helped you in your own spiritual growth and, and in your walk with with Jesus, something that you might want to share with the, the listeners? 
Yeah, sure. One of the one of the most important books that I ever read was C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. And as I was wrestling with questions of why do I believe this? Why should I believe these things? Um, mere Christianity really helped me find solid ground about why I should believe these truths of the faith, right? In ministry, the biggest impact that we have with those around us flows out of our own spiritual life. And if I have good reasons and a good foundation, it's much easier to share those truths with other people. So I'd recommend Mere Christianity to anybody. Um, the other one I would recommend is Through the Gates of Splendor, written by Elizabeth Elliot. And Jim Elliot was killed with Nate Saint in, in Ecuador in 1956. And um, Jim's perspective on the gospel is brilliant. He just has a great way of communicating the heart of Jesus to people. And so I'd highly recommend uh, reading that book. From an aviation perspective, I have um, uh, there's an author named Tony Kern. And he writes great books. One of them is called Flight Discipline. The other one is called Redefining Airmanship. And those are wonderful reads for any pilot, um, professional or, you know, weekend, uh, barnstormer, whatever you want to be. Um, those books are really, really influential in my flying life. So any of those I think would be great picks. All right. Thanks for sharing. Those are, those are all excellent recommendations. Okay, Pete. Well, before we close, how can our audience be praying for you and your family? You know, obviously you can always pray for safety as I'm flying, as we're out and about in town and just kind of doing daily life. Safety is a thing that's always in our mind. More than that, though, I'd ask everybody to pray for um, the Lord to bring, um, bring along our path the right people at the right time um, so that we can share just the amazingness of Jesus with them. There are lots of hurting people all over this little town where we live. And to be able to have natural encounters with them where we get to share Jesus would just be fantastic. And so that's what I would pray for, is that um, you would help us to be an encouragement to those around us. Pray for us to uh, lead our young boys well so that they can learn about Jesus and, and about his heart for them. And pray that we can be an encouragement to our teammates as well, as all of us are struggling with different stresses in our lives. Um, we have to lean on each other as family. And so, um, yeah, I just pray that you could help us bring unity and um, strength to our team. Okay, well, we will definitely be praying for those things. And, and I know you will have lots of our listeners praying for you in these areas as well. Pete, how can people connect with you on, on social media or elsewhere to learn more about you and, and the work that you're doing there in Indonesia and maybe even become a, a supporter of your ministry, either through prayer or, or even financially? Yeah, sure. Well, obviously, you can connect with us on Facebook. Pete Greenwald uh, is my name on Facebook. Uh, I'm on Instagram as well as The Left Seat. And then um, if you want to go to our MAF page, it's www.maf.org slash Greenwald. And there you can read a little bit more about our family and where we serve and uh, if you feel led, you can even begin supporting us. Um, you can sign up to receive prayer letters or emails or those kinds of different things. So those are all great ways to connect with us, and we welcome that. Okay, great. Well, I'm going to put each of the books that you mentioned, along with uh, these different avenues to to connect with you in the show notes for this episode, and they will be available on our website for any anyone who wants to uh, take a look at these these books or take a look at ways they can 
connect with and, and interact and encourage uh, you and your family. So thank you Great. for sharing each each of those things. I really really appreciate it. and I, and I I do Pete appreciate your uh, time tonight. This was just outstanding. I cannot thank you enough for making the time to come on on the show. I have been blessed and encouraged personally by the things that you have shared, but I have also learned some new things about missionary aviation as well and I'm I'm grateful for that and I assume that the same will be true for the people who listen uh, to this show. I'm sure that they will feel the exact same way. So thank you once again for giving us some of your time. Please uh, thank your your wife for allowing you to to take some time away from the family to be with us. And do know that I'll be praying for God's blessings on your ministry and your family. And I hope that you and I will stay in touch, okay? Yeah, thanks, Jimmy. I really appreciate it. And thanks again for asking me. And, uh, you know, anybody who ever has any questions about mission aviation, I would say, please feel free to contact me and um, I'm happy to talk to anybody who, who has even the smallest question. So thanks again. I really appreciate it. All right, Pete. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for this episode. We thank you once again for listening. You can learn more about the podcast and subscribe to it by visiting plainfaith.com. That's P-L-A-N-E faith.com. You will also find links there to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you are interested in becoming a patron of the show, you can do that as well by visiting patreon.com forward slash plain faith. And of course, Jimmy would love to hear from you personally. So feel free to email him at jimmy at plainfaith.com or by using the contact form on our website. Until next time, remember that God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The intro and outro music for the Plain Faith podcast is a song called Chipper by Kevin McLeod. You can find his work at incompetech.com.